Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of the Biosplaining Podcast. My name is Ira. I'm so glad you're here. And before we get started, I just wanted to take a moment to introduce myself and this podcast and clear up some terminology about what we're going to talk about later on in the episode. So I started the Biosplaining Podcast because I'm a huge science nerd. Over the years, I've had a lot of opportunities working in sort of science adjacent jobs to grow research portfolios and interact with researchers and present research projects to different audiences. And it's occurred to me over the years that there's a huge gap between the general public and scientists. And it's not that the general public doesn't want to know about science. It's that there's so much technical information and detail and jargon and foundational knowledge required to understand a lot of science that the general public just doesn't really understand where to start. But it's hard to bridge that gap between scientists and the general public. So I wanted to start this podcast because I love learning about science and talking about it and and hoping to get other people as excited about science as I am. And I wanted a way to expose people, whether or not you're in the general public or a scientist yourself, to really cool work that's happening across the entire scientific universe. So it's my hope that I can present really interesting scientific work to anyone listening to this podcast and I can make it engaging and exciting and illuminating and I hope that you learned something and that you enjoyed listening to this. A secondary goal of mine for this podcast is to really humanize scientific research. And what I mean by this is that I want to expose non-scientists to the realities and the stories and perspectives of scientists conducting research and running experiments. I feel like part of the reason why there's this huge disconnect between the scientific community and the general public is that science works very differently than other industries that the general public participates in. Things like labor and time and deliverables exist differently in science than in any other regular company. Science is almost like a bubble in this regard. And I think that part of the reason why it's difficult for people in the general public to understand how scientists work and what their day-to-day life is actually like is because it's a difficult world to understand unless you're inside of it. And there's any grad students listening to this podcast, I hope there are, hello, We've probably all heard the cliche about, you know, your friends and family never asking what you do and never understanding what you're studying. And it's not that they don't know, maybe they don't, and it's not necessarily like they don't care, although let's face it, that's probably true. It's that it's really hard for them to even understand what running experiments is like. Because when you're running experiments, you're not participating in the value creation system that is so central to economics and to capitalism as we know it. So my goal with this podcast is just to expose people to science, expose people to scientists, talk about experiments, talk about research, and help people who aren't practicing scientists sort of understand what the life of a scientist is like. All right, so now that we've gotten the why out of the way, I want to talk about today's first ever guest. The first guest on the Biosplaining podcast is none other than Sarah Holland. Sarah Holland is a patent attorney with a firm called Potter Clarkson out of Nottingham in the UK. I first came across Sarah on LinkedIn, and she was a guest on another podcast about biology called the Computer Assisted Biology or CAB podcast. She was a guest on this podcast, and I really liked what she had to say. And so I connected with her and I read her profile. And I noticed that on her profile, she had a really, really clever and fantastic piece of writing. She basically wrote an article that critiqued the Rocky Horror Picture Show through the lens of IP. 
So she took the super famous cult classic movie that I think everyone knows and loves, at least I hope everyone listening to this knows and loves, and she discussed all the inventions and experiments in the movie and applied sort of an IP lens to explain how IP principles and legislation would apply to this movie. And I read that and I thought, this person's amazing and I think she's my new best friend and I connected with her and pretty much right off the top just asked her if she wanted to be on my podcast. So we connected and have been chatting and gushing about synthetic biology and biotech over the weeks and I'm really honored to say that we've become fast friends. Sarah's fantastic. She's loads of fun. She's super smart. She's very funny. She's got killer style and just a lovely person. So I'm really, really grateful that she agreed to get on the podcast and introduce us to not only IP concepts, which I think is really important for both scientists and the general public to understand, but we also had some really great conversations about her experience as a researcher and a postdoc and sort of her grievances with academia, which is something I definitely want to explore more on this podcast because research is hard, grad school is hard. And I think that one problem with the science industry in general is that often people feel trapped inside of it and they don't conceptualize opportunities for them outside of science. And so it becomes this vicious cycle of remaining in an industry that you might not enjoy. And Sarah was able to jump out of science and get into law and and being a patent attorney sort of by chance and sort of by exposure. And that's a career transition that I think a lot of people would really appreciate hearing about. Okay, so really quickly, I want to talk about promoters. I mentioned the word promoter because Sarah discusses engineering yeast promoters when we're discussing some IP scenarios. Sarah's background is studying yeast. Yeast is a very important model organism to study in terms of cellular biology because it helps us to understand how eukaryotic cells function. So a promoter is a region of a gene that is where transcription of the mRNA of that gene is initiated. It's the sequence of DNA where the RNA polymerase, the enzyme that creates RNA from a DNA template, binds to and starts the transcription process. Promoters are super important because in addition to being the binding site for RNA polymerase, they also contain a whole whack of other what are called regulatory sequences or regulatory elements. So these regulatory elements are involved in controlling things like where the gene is expressed in terms of maybe a specific location or, or tissue type within an organism, or when they're expressed, or how strongly they're expressed. So when Sarah mentions a hypothetical scenario of creating an enhanced yeast promoter, she's talking about a situation where someone has taken the promoter of a gene and engineered it so that it's more effective, so that the expression of that gene would be stronger in that engineered line of yeast. Promoters are fascinating for this reason. So if you think about a gene, a gene basically consists of two components at the very high level. So try this. So draw a long rectangle on a piece of paper. It can be as long as you want. And then take about one fifth of that length and put a line vertically. So you're dividing it into, say, one fifth and four fifths. The four fifths, the larger component, is what's going to be known as the open reading frame or the ORF. And that sequence of the gene is going to encode the actual protein. The rest of it, the one fit that is upstream or to the left of that open reading frame is going to be the promoter. And the promoter you can think of as maybe the the brain in a way or the instructions for the gene. It's the instructions that will dictate where, when, and how strong that protein that's encoded by that gene 
is. So it will tell you where this protein is going to be expressed, how much of it's going to be expressed. And the reason that's possible is because there's a whole lot of regulatory elements within the promoter. And those are binding sites for other proteins called transcription factors, which affect the transcription and the gene expression of that specific protein. So to summarize, all genes have at a very high level a promoter, which are sort of the instructions of the gene and the open reading frame, which encodes for the protein itself. Their promoter is a region that controls the expression, location, timing, intensity, etc., of that protein. And when you're engineering promoters, you can do all sorts of really cool things. You can have promoters that will turn a gene on all the time. You will have promoters that will weaken the expression of a certain uh, gene. You will have promoters that when put in front of a gene, what they call drive expression into certain areas at certain times. So my background is in plant biology. I studied leaf development. If I wanted to have a gene that's only expressed in, say, vascular tissues, I could clone a gene of interest that's driven by a specific vascular centric promoter so that I can only have the protein expressed in the vascular cells or the mesophyll cells or the epidermis, the top layer of, of tissue on the leaf. Okay, so in true IRA fashion, that was probably way too long. Thank you so much for bearing with me for that introduction. I just wanted to clear some things up and explain the podcast and explain some of the concepts so that I'm not alienating anyone in the audience. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoy the conversation I have with Sarah Holland. Here we go. Mic up a little bit. I just, it seems um, kind of quiet. I could go and get a headset. I've had settings on this one. If you can hear me, you don't, don't worry about a headset, but. I can hear you. I just don't know. I think, oh, where's the settings? I don't know where the settings are on Zoom. Is that any better? Yeah, that's actually great. That's perfect. You sure? Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? I can hear you, yeah. Perfect. Sorry. Okay. Let's do this. Uh, So I guess like there's so many things I want to talk about. Um, I wanted, well, first of all, I do have to keep an eye on the time because it's free Zoom. So hopefully after 40 minutes, we can just like start the call again. Yeah, yeah. And just come up. But uh, what I do want to try to touch on with this podcast is, is a few things, but one of them is sort of like humanizing science and researchers and, and sort of sharing their stories, because I think a lot of the general public doesn't understand the first thing about how science works. And I think sharing um, some of the stories that you, for instance, shared on the computer assisted biology podcast would be amazing because you talked about your, your life as a researcher and a postdoc. Yeah. And I think your transition into law is like super interesting. And I think it could be really inspiring to a lot of people who are sort of maybe in the same position you were in where you weren't sure what to do and you wanted to do something, but build on your experience. Yeah. Uh, and then we can just talk about IP and like, I'm so happy you're here because well, first of all, I want to sort of like apologize in a way because like, as these things always work, the first episode is always like the jankiest. So That's fine. Uh, you should just come back like every few months and just be like, seriously, like a correspondent. It'd be like, this is an update from the IP world. Yeah, yeah. Just so you know, I also hope I don't like force you into a conversation where you say anything you're not supposed to. So if you can't comment on anything, just, just let me know. Okay. Okay, so I'll listen to uh, it after and say, "Oh yeah, I delete that bit." Yeah, well, I can send you the audio afterwards, and, and you can figure out, you know, what, what is what you can't say. Yeah. Um, so to start off, can maybe just give your just a super brief intro, like your name and and what you do and who you are. Yeah. Okay, so I'm Sarah Holland, and I'm a patent attorney at a firm called Potter Clarkson, um, which has got its 
uh, but not until not long ago, I only had one big office in Nottingham in the middle of England. And then in the last few years, we've opened offices in London, Copenhagen and Sweden. Oh, wow. So do you just, do you primarily work in, um, in just like the, in, in Nottingham in England, or do you do work across all those offices? Yeah, yeah. So I live in Nottingham and that's, that's the office that I'm uh, mostly based in. I go to London or did go to London quite a bit. And we'll be hopefully picking that up again soon. That's amazing. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. Let's, (laughs) let's talk about your origin story. My origin story. Let's have like a superhero moment. Can you just take me back to, uh, to, how you, you know, like when you started as a researcher, what were you doing? What were you studying? If it's not too traumatic. <laughs> okay. So first, that's, I suppose, I don't know, I guess it's a bit of a tale of um, serendipity and not really knowing what I wanted to do, which I think is how lots of people end up where they are. Yeah, um, yeah. So when I was at school, so 18, trying to decide what degree I wanted to do, I really liked quantum physics and astrophysics. And I also liked biology. So I was like, I don't know what to do. And at the time, my dad he used to organise lectures for the Institute of Electrical Engineers. Mm. And he got, um, in the, I don't, you probably haven't heard him, but in the UK there was this like kind of children's science guy called Johnny Ball. And he used to have science TV programmes. Awesome. So my dad had got this guy to lecture at one of these things. And I was, I was speaking to him afterwards and he said his son was at university doing astrophysics and he didn't like it. So that little, that little tiny conversation steered me away from, from that. So that sent me down the biology route. Um, I did biochemistry and genetics as, an under, as a third degree. And then it, I suppose in my like early school reports, like when I was seven, it said, oh, one day she'll be a scientist. So I suppose I've got that kind of in me thinking, oh, I'm going to yeah. have to be a scientist. Um, so I stayed on to do a PhD. Again, not really, not really knowing what I wanted to do. I really loved science. I wanted to stay in science. Um, I didn't know anything then about the academic career. I think that's kind of a big I hope it's changed now, but back then, <laughs> even you don't know what the next step's going to be. It's like, well, I'll do a PhD, but what does that mean in the context of like yeah. your career? I don't know. So I did a PhD yeah. and that was with um, one of the lecturers that lectured me. So I kind of just fell into that, I guess. Uh, what um, were you studying in your PhD? Sorry? Sorry, uh, what were you studying in your PhD? So my PhD was using yeast and I was looking at um, centromeres in yeast and trying to build an artificial centromere um which is like very forward thinking like very ahead of the game for for the time right that's like synthetic biology well yeah exactly like like, a few months ago i realized actually yeah that was like synthetic biology back like 20 years ago um can't say i got very far with it i did a lot of cloning um i enjoyed it it was good so then i left and went to work as a well, it wasn't really, it was more like a PA to a professor. It was like a research assistant type thing. And it was in behavioral ecology, so quite a different area. Oh, wow. um, but I, after six months, I thought, no, I don't like this. I don't like being the kind of supporter of the research on me back doing the research. Mm-hmm. So then I came back to Nottingham and did a postdoc with one of the people who vibed me for my PhD. So I guess that's kind of a bit of the building a network and using that, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And then I stayed there for seven or eight years, postdocing. Wow. Then I know. Again, seven it was years. I don't know. I wanted my I wanted to have my own lab because I enjoyed yeah, doing yeah. the science and thinking. Um, but in academia, as you know, you've got you're supposed to move around and go to different labs, and I didn't want to do that. And I suppose I was a bit stubborn. I was like, well, I'm not going to move because I'm quite good at what I do. Why should I have to move? Right. But can, can it you is just... true. You can't get anywhere because you've not yeah. moved around. 
And I, I want to just put a pin in that that I'll touch on right now. And I'm sorry, I, I tend to sort of cut people off. That's so interesting. And I think this is something that isn't really discussed outside of science. Like there's this unspoken um, sort of rule that you should move around like every degree, every few years yeah. for some, I don't understand. I mean, like I, I, when I was, you know, a younger person, I always got this job advice, like don't leave jobs too quickly because it's going to look really sketchy on your resume and doesn't look yeah. great. But then in science, it's like, no, you should be moving around from lab to lab because for some reason people deem that to be like really competitive, even though, like you said, you're in a great space and you're being really effective. Yeah. And like, why should you just move for the sake of moving? Like it's yeah. silly. Ugh. Yeah, I'm sure there must be reads. And I, and I can see, I suppose you get very entrenched in how your lab does things. Right. And especially when you've been there a while and you're kind of like the, the highest up postdoc or whatever. Mm. That's how you, you're then teaching other people and you're probably not exposed to all the different ways of doing things. Like, I suppose our lab and all the labs I worked in, they didn't have much money. So you do things the old fashioned way, yep. quite trying to save money. Whereas perhaps in other labs, I might have been exposed to a bit more robotics or... Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, well we're going to buy a kitchen, right? You're not going to make up all your own buffers. Um, so I suppose it's things like that. But yeah, I was very, I didn't really want to move away from the area so much, and right. I thought, well, why should I have to? So I didn't. Yeah. And then I got to, I did apply for one fellowship um, to a diabetes charity, looking because I found something out about yeast and glycogen, so I wanted to look into that in a awesome. potential diabetic kind of way. Um, I didn't get that, and then I was getting towards the end of my postdoc. I'd got a four-year-old daughter. Oh wow! And I was divorced. So I was a single mum, and she was so she was about to start school. And I'm like, well, I don't know where to send her because I've got this stupid non-permanent contract. Oh my god! I don't know where I'm going to be working. Right? Yeah. So that that was that was like, well, I could look for something else like this, a postdoc, but I'll just have the same problem in another few years' time. Um, so I, I didn't intend to leave to do this again. Somebody from the firm I'm working at now came and did a careers talk. Um, and bit, pattern attorney was something I had thought of a long time ago, but somebody at the time said, oh, it's very competitive. So I was immediately, oh, well, I'll not be able to do it because, mm. you know, mm. it's so competitive, I'll not get in. So I kind of dismissed that. But then this guy came right. and spoke and I spoke to him and it sounded like something I'd really enjoy. So I decided to apply to all the firms within a commutable distance because I was divorced. I didn't want to move my daughter away from the dad. Right. So it was kind of a, um, and then I was so glad I got this job at Potter Clarkson, which is where I wanted to work. It was staying in Nottingham and it, it's such a great firm. And yeah, I don't know, because it is so competitive. I've taken on, with me and Stephanie have taken on a trainee and we had to look for like, probably like 300 CVs. Wow. And it's just, yeah. That's amazing. So, so can, I, can I ask... Oh, I'm here. I go cutting people off again. I'm sorry. Can I ask a clarifying question then? So then you didn't actually have to go to law school to end up in the position that you're in. No, no, no. So I don't. Oh, you did go to law school. No. So to be a UK and a European patent attorney, which is what I am, you have to sit a number of exams. Right. And to sit the exams, the only the only qualification you need is to have got a science degree. Oh my gosh, that's that's incredible. So being a patent attorney, it's very much the science first, and then the law. People always ask, like, how do you find the law? And I suppose I don't I don't see it as two separate things. It's like all science, but in this kind of framework of deadlines and right, right. the law about, so to get a patent granted, it's got to be new and it's got to be inventive. So there's law and case law about what does it mean to be new? Mm -hmm. What is it assessed um, over? What's 
an internet disclosure what kind what kind of just how does that count as prior art so there's kind of legal things around there and there's deadlines and what happens if you miss a deadline so the best is those kind of things but i don't see it as two separate mm-hmm. right it's all science and we're talking about science arguing science it's just you've got to do it within certain deadlines and- yeah that's like super interesting i think a lot of people would be relieved to hear that because I feel like there are probably a lot of people in the science community who would like to explore like a position like yours but think I have to go to law school now and that's a whole production and four years of oh oh wow yeah yeah no no I I can't say what it's like for qualifying as an attorney elsewhere I would expect it to be the same Mm -hmm. but maybe not um I know my friend we met because she was she was training to be a UK attorney but she was American and she went back there and she sat at the bar. So now she's a proper right, US right. attorney. Um, Super awesome. But I think she did a science degree and then some law thing on top. Very cool. That's amazing. And and so again, like like fun fun point to draw out is you had uh, like a career talk from someone at the firm you first you work at now, but it was like a really great like serendipity networking chance, and you just sort of went out and, and created your opportunities and, and went for it. That's that's super awesome. Yeah. Uh, I want to move on when I, I heard you on the CAB podcast, um, you said something that was so funny in like a sad way, but uh, you were talking about how when you became, uh, work, you started working in the firm, all of a sudden you had this concept of billable hours and you're like, what is this? And I think that's so uh, interesting to point out again, because one thing that I found more and more as I like look back on my experience as a grad student and a researcher is that like in science, things like labor and time are valued in this completely different way. It's almost like your time isn't worth anything. You just do these experiments. And if if it takes you three weeks, it takes you three weeks, but then you get into, especially into like a firm where you're having billable hours, like, like money becomes the driver. And that's such like, that was a culture shock for me. What was it like for you when you first got there? Sorry, say again, you cut out slightly. Oh, sorry. I was going to say like, what was, you know, what was your experience navigating billable hours? Like, did you have to reprogram your brain to start thinking sort of differently about your work? Yeah, I suppose suppose at the start, it's very much a case of when when you train, you're not expected to do things really fast. The whole point is that you you do spend the time Mm -hmm. learning because if you put too much pressure on trying to do things fast to start off with, then you're not going to spend that time to get the groundwork in. Mm-hmm. and as you progress you're not going to get faster so there wasn't really there's not any pressure to do things fast but yes you do have to record your time and that that did feel strange strange yeah because you probably never recorded your time like well gosh that here for four hours what does that mean yeah and then 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 when you get a bit higher up and you start doing your billing you see what that four hours actually looks like in the bill that's a bit shocking as well <laughs> yeah and also too in 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 lab research like there's no bill you never see you never see a bill maybe oh, no. you see a grant application maybe but you can't roll it up to that that's yeah. so like, that's oh, so yeah, interesting enzyme it's it's all gone or you dropped your box of tips all over the floor and just oh well never mind yeah exactly yeah, yeah. That's, that's that's so interesting <laughs> Okay, um, let's move on to some IP stuff, if that's okay. Uh, mm-hmm. So, okay, I want to take this opportunity because I don't get to speak to many people involved in the IP world. So I think it'd be really helpful for the audience if like, I could use you to teach the masses <laughs> at a very high level sort of about like the basics of, of patents and sort of IP and IP law, because I think 
it's something that is obviously super important, super important to, you know, business and the science world. But a lot of people like don't understand it, including myself. I feel like I have like a 40% understanding. Like I know what a patent is, but it's just the idea. And I don't know how all these things play out in terms of like, how do you defend it and what it takes and where the, the lines are. So I'm wondering if we can just start off with like, pretend you're explaining to a child, <laughs> maybe, maybe a little complicated than that, but like, what is intellectual property? Like, how do you define IP? So IP is, is really kind of a creation of the mind. So it's something that you've thought of or created, and it's not, not always like necessarily a physical thing, but it's trying to protect that because it's valuable. You coming up with these thoughts and ideas, it's, it's valuable. So right. um, types of IP are copyrights. So if you write something, draw a picture, that's automatically protected by copyright. You don't have to register those. Okay. Um, okay. Design- so, sorry. 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 So, just to clarify, so yeah. so IP is basically just like an idea that is protected, and there's different tools. And so, like copyright applies more to, I guess you could say, like media creative work, like songs, art. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Um, then there are designs which protect the appearance of something. Okay. Um, there are trademarks which protect your branding, your logo, like your get up. Right. And then there are patents. So patents protect an invention, so an inventive concept. Okay. So patents you can't use to protect an idea. So if you just had, I don't know, a random idea, you can't protect it. You have to have shown it works or it has to be kind of plausible it works. So in biotech, oh, okay. um, so bi- in biotech stuff, you do need to normally have a bit of data to show that what you're your idea is going to work. Okay. So then to, if I understand correctly, so like a patent would be to protect an invention, but it just can't be any invention. It has to show that it works and that it's, it's novel. I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. So so, so one of, so you can't protect a perpetual motion machine because just because you've had an idea of it or a time machine. Right. Oh, I've had an idea of this great time machine. It's not going to work unless you make it work in which case that's great. Um, so, a patent, and so if you get a granted patent, it gives you the right to stop other people working what your patent covers. Okay. It doesn't give you an automatic right to do it yourself because there might be other overlapping rights. And this is called your freedom to operate, and it's part of, it's a thing that a lot of people misunderstand. Freedom to operate and patentability different. They kind of overlap, but they're different. Okay, so then freedom so, to operate is how would you how would you contrast that from patents? Right? Freedom to operate is is like your ability to work. It's your space. Okay. Within space. within the patents, if I had a patent to, I don't know, covered any yeast promoter, um, I don't know, to express gene Y, but generally it's not spe- not specified what the yeast promoter is, um, and then you take a yeast promoter and you modify it and make it really really good. So your yeast promoter is new and it's inventive over what I've already got. Because I'm just, I've just got generic yeast promoters are really good to express this protein. You're, yeah, and you're like, yeah, but this one's really, really good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you could probably get a patent to that. Mm-hmm. So you've got a patent, I've got a patent. But you can't use your new mutator promoter without taking the license from me because I can stop you using any yeast promoter, if that makes sense. You can stop me from using any yeast promoter? Yeah. I just want to make if sure. I, if I have okay. a granted patent to any yeast promoter to express gene Y, and then you 
want to use your special yeast promoter to express gene Y. I can't. You can't. Right. Unless because you have the um you just said this term, I already I already forgot it. That's your space. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Audience, so you don't I'm have sorry. To because I am like stopping you. But I can stop you. Right. So really it has a lot to do, I guess, with like foundations, right? So if I've made, if I've had a patent to all of these promoters, you can't improve on any yeast promoter because you're automatically sort of infringing on my operability space. You can, no, you can improve on them and you can get a patent to it. Okay. You just can't use it. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. So this is, this is interesting. So it could be an advantage. You, you've made this new promoter. You can't use it unless I say you can. But because you've got a new promoter and I might want to use it myself, then we could like cross license maybe. Okay, perfect. This brings me to my next bulk of questions. So aside from from patents, which are like the protection, then there's this whole area of of usability, if that's maybe the right word, like how you how you actually use these tools. Yeah. And so licensing becomes a big thing. Are there any when you're dealing with patents is is basically the the execution side in the realm of licenses, or is there other arrangements that can be made? Or is it always like you have a license to use a patent? Is there something else? Um, I think it's general licenses. Okay. Um, you can have exclusive licenses, non-exclusive licenses, and then you might allow that person to sub-license themselves. Right. So I think there's something online about, there's an article in Nature where they've done the COVID patent landscape. And you can see somebody's... I think I saw that, yeah. Somebody's got like the foundational pattern. They they've licensed it to somebody, but then they've sublicensed it to a few other people. Um, so I think it does mostly operate by by licenses or by assignment. So you you could just I could just buy your pattern off you if you wanted to sell oh. it. <laughs> okay. So so licensing, to my understanding, then like licensing is kind of the way that like just patents and science work. Like that's how the world works. Everything gets everyone gets licensed and sublicensed. So. Because this is, but I might not want. I, I might not want to give you a license, right? In which case, it's so. They get so it depends who you are and how defensive defensive you are as a company, or you know, if you've got two competitors, you're probably not going to license it to your competitor. So how do things work? Um, I just keep thinking of like CRISPR because CRISPR. I mean, so yeah. for the audience, CRISPR is a extremely amazing gene editing. Let's call it like a tool or a system that was derived from um, uh, basically bacterial enzymes to protect against DNA invasion. So these enzymes in nature clip out viral DNA if they get infected. Uh, and then these brilliant biochemists and scientists sort of co-opted the system to design it to track down and enable us to like clip out any parts of a genome that we want. But what I don't understand, because you hear about CRISPR like every single day, but what I don't understand is like how that licensing works. So is it is it like because a friend of mine who's a postdoc in the states uses CRISPR on the regular, but I guess it's like for academic research, it's it's okay. You have the license, but you just can't like. Can they publish? Like, what can't they do with these licenses? So I think um, yeah, it's very very complicated. And I if I wanted to work using CRISPR, I wouldn't know where to start looking to see what right. who I need to speak to. Um, that's something I'm going to look into. But um, didn't so mean to throw under the bus there. It was just something that. Like, <laughs> yeah, if, so if you've got an academic license that does tend to let you use it for academic research only but I think one of the things that I'm quite interested in looking into more is what happens in that crossover where your academic research becomes commercial mm -hmm. because so so if you're doing academic research you can publish you can publish it and say well I use mm -hmm. this um but then if 
So some of when when you buy a kit, so you buy a crisper kit, it only comes with like terms and the license booklet. And I think sometimes they can be very broad. So a commercial product can be anything that at some point had this kit involved in its development. Mm. So I think I think in the US, one of well the only lawsuit I'm aware of to do with COVID was Allele Biotech um, versus Regeneron and uh, one of the other ones. I think I think with the Regeneron, I might have got this wrong. I think in an earlier academic paper, Regeneron or whoever it was had used this GFP and published that they'd used this GFP that belonged to Allele. And then now that research has led to um, the COVID antibody cocktail. So that early academic research that might have been purely academic has kind of gone down the commercial route. And at that point, you have to check to see if you're allowed to have done what you did for the commercial reasons. And if not, then you have to go back and try and seek the proper commercial license. Okay, yeah. So then let's let's explore this a little bit. So let's do a little like half-assed role playing here. So say I'm I'm back in the lab because I think it's also really helpful if we try and, and sort of um, describe like the process of actually checking out these protections. So like I'm back in my lab. I'm you know I'm working on whatever. I I, I discover some system that I feel like might be worth looking into protecting first. I know we've mentioned this before just when we've chatted, but like, can you talk a little bit about maybe why you think some researchers don't actually go for IP protections? Cause I think a lot of researchers don't understand or feel like it's complicated or feel like it's, yeah. they don't have money. So what's, what's a common obstacle for IP protection in, in the research community? I think, so I think the first part is just, just being aware of it. Cause obviously the most main motivation for academic research is to publish. Mm-hmm. So the aim is just to publish, 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 and perhaps researchers are very focused on getting to the aims of the grant and they don't think of looking at the side projects that might come up. And you might not think of um, the implications of some, some of your results that they could end up having in other areas. So you might get a really good result for your um, what you're aiming towards, but if you thought about it a little bit more commercial, a bit differently, you might think, oh, actually, maybe that could be a new drug for something or it could be a new method for doing something. Mm-hmm. I think that one of the obstacles is just getting people to think a bit more like that. Right. The second is lack of, probably lack of awareness or misconception. Cause I remember when I was in the lab and I'd got, if I thought of something, I always thought, Oh, it's probably been done before or it's not new. Yeah. yeah. Stop, just stop. Um, when really now I know novelty and inventive step, how they're assessed, there was probably a lot of things that were new and could have been inventive. Um, another thing, so so when you think of something at a university, you ought to tech, talk to your tre- tech transfer office who handle all the commercialization. But normally if you're a postdoc, you probably talk to your PI first. And I think in my experience, a lot of PIs can be quite resistant or they, they're not interested. They've got, yeah. to me, I suppose that they've got their position. They're going to be judged now on how many publications you get for them. Right. Um, perhaps not interested in protecting anything. They've got no desire to kind of spin out a company because they're right. they're kind of made, aren't they? They've got their job. Right, right. Whereas the more junior postdoc or PhD student, that could be a really good opportunity for them to take their work out somewhere. Right. Um, 
set up a spin-out, com- spin-out company. Right. So is I think... Po- sorry, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, for, for me, I had something and I hit a lot of resistance at that level and I didn't, I didn't mm. go around it and I, I wish I had, really. Now. Where's so the time think, machine? Where's the time machine we need? Yeah, I know, so, I know. No, I wouldn't change anything where I am now, so that's fine. So, but, okay, so then to... to sort of clarify, like it is possible theoretically, like if you're a postdoc and you have something you want to, you think is valuable, but if your PI doesn't really agree, it is possible to sort of circumvent them and, and go to, um, you know, your time. I think if I had my time again, I would. I think I hope I'd stick with myself a bit more and I would do it. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. Just in terms of um, IP at universities, the if you're an employee, the IP, especially like in the UK, it would belong to the university. So although you as a postdoc could have invented something, it will probably belong to the university. So that's why you have to go to the tech transfer office to see how they want to deal with it because it's their IP, really. Okay, great. So what, what in, in super basic terms, I mean, a tech transfer office is an office university. What do they do for, for researchers? Uh, so they do, the, the way we work with them is normally um, in the initial patent filing stage. So we work with them and the inventors to work out what the invention is, get an application filed. And then, we work with the tech transfer office during prosecution. So we take instructions from them. We'll suggest what we think we should do, but ultimately they're the ones who own the IP, so they'll instruct us. Um, they also try and seek license agreements for the IP. Cause I think, I think a lot of them have a policy of taking it so far. And then if they've got no commercial interest in it, they will ditch it. I don't okay. know how much the inventor academics have, what, what role they have in that. I'm sure they could have a role in that cause they probably know who, what companies are more likely to want to work with your technology? So I'm sure they right. Okay. There. So so basically, like the universities by default sort of always own the IP. Is that a fair summary, or is it more? In, in most cases, I think in yeah. some places, like a PhD student isn't an employee, so it's <laughs> more <laughs> right. contract. And then depending who they get funded by, some of the funding bodies right. may have yeah claim rights over the IP. So I think it's, it's so that's, that is probably one of the big bits that the tech transfer office do. They have to sort out the ownership. Who, right. uh, who owns okay. it? And especially if you've got joint applicants, so obviously academic uh, research is very collaborative. Mm-hmm. So quite often we might have got two universities named on something. So you have to decide who's going to be the lead on it, who's going to, how you're going to share costs. And, right. Okay. Yeah, so it, so it's like, not possible. I'm sorry. I'm the worst at this over talking, Sarah. This is like why no, I have to come on, back on. over and over again, like every two months. Um, so it's not really possible or feasible for like Ira, the postdoc with his world changing idea to just be like, screw it. I'm going to go visit Sarah at Potter Clarkson. And then like you, like a firm doesn't replace the tech transfer office. They have to, they handle like a portion yeah. of that journey. So you can't get around the tech transfer. Okay. Which, yeah, is, they, which is good. Yeah, they, they wouldn't they wouldn't appreciate it. Like we've, I think we're very happy we'd be very happy to talk to you, but we would then steer you to the tech transfer office because it's right. They're, they're the ones that's going to have to pay for it, so they got to see if they've got the budget for it, I guess. Right. But then I think if they don't want to take it forward, then I think most of them would would offer it to you to then take on yourself. Oh, okay, so that's an option. Interesting. Very cool. <laughs> So from there, I just want to like run some or discuss some things that I think are interesting about IP because again, like I, I understand a little bit of it, but then 
especially when you're talking about like patenting, like a promoter, like those kinds of things still blow my mind because I think I'm, I'm sort of of this belief that I'm like, how, how is it possible that you can like patent a gene? Like how is, how can you patent like an enzyme? So like what is and is not patentable? Like, so you can patent. So first of all, like, can you patent a gene or a promoter? Yes. In Europe, you can. In the US, you can if it's not classed as a natural uh, a natural product. So um, in Europe, you could protect the wild type sequence of a particular gene. You have to show it's got some use. It's got to have like kind of a utility. You can't just say, I'm going to protect every gene in the yeast genome. Yeah. You've got to kind of, in the, in the application, you've got to kind of like, well, we're going to use it because this, we're going to express this protein and it's going to be really good to use in this process. Is there any, ever any, like, this is sort of maybe an overtly humanist perspective, but I wonder is like, so that makes sense if, if there's something useful and you're going to, you know, express this protein in the yeast genome and you want to protect the wild type gene, but yeah. is there ever any grounds to say like, no, because DNA belongs to the world? Like how, how is it that like a company can just patent a wild type gene because they're working in it, but doesn't that belong to everyone? Or is that argument like, is that going to get me thrown out of litigation? because it's I think that would just get thrown out (laughs) it's too it's too it's too optimistic unfortunately okay well that clarifies that so in the U.S. you can't protect natural there's fairly recent-ish um change you can't protect natural okay products so in the U.S. you won't be able to protect okay a a natural gene or even a mutated gene that naturally occurs but you could take it out and do things to it and then and you can engineer it okay yeah that makes yeah. sense okay so then you can patent genes you've posted really interestingly things about uh patenting microbes so i guess that's yeah. obviously the same thing because we can engineer cells to do whatever we want now so that yeah so that you could claim sense. a yeast cell um, that expresses this human gene um you can you can protect naturally occurring strains so this is one thing i was going to write about is um so there's different regulatory uh, rules, say, between the US and Europe. So in the US, you CRISPR edited stuff, I think, is not considered GMO. So you can mm. CRISPR edit your whatever corn. Mm-hmm. In the UK and Europe, in Europe, for some reason, CRISPR gene editing falls under GMO. So we can't, they won't let you have a marketing authorization for GMO, uh, for CRISPR edited stuff. Hmm. So one of the ways around that is probably to use a natural occurring thing or, and then this is where it's even more stupid because chemical mutagenesis and UV mutagenesis has been used for so long to produce mm-hmm. new strains of uh, wheat and things mm-hmm. that's considered safe. So in Europe, you can have that. You just can't make these very targeted CRISPR edited mutations. So you just have to do a bunch of mutagenesis and hope you, hope you to get what you want <laughs> Nat- naturally, yeah. so to speak. Oh my gosh. Yeah, just hope. <laughs> so I guess one, one way around that is to use a chemical mutagenesis or use a naturally occurring strain. But the problem with those is you, it's going to be very hard to define what gene or mutation within that is responsible for the good, right. the phenotype that you want. Right, right. Yeah, so I'm going to take a wild strain from Brazil and it's really good at making this compound, but I can't define it in words as to what it is about that that makes it make this compound. Whereas yeah. if I was expressing a plasmid in a yeast, I can say, I can describe that yeast as the yeast that expresses this gene. So there's differences there in how you can describe them in words in a patent application. Um, so 
if we were talking about yeast that expresses a particular gene from a plasmid, we can write that in words and you can probably claim any yeast that expresses that gene. If we're talking about a wild type yeast, we can't define that. You can say it's yeast strain, blah, 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 but we can't point to any particular gene. So the way we have to claim that, it has to be what's called sufficiently disclosed so that other people can work your invention. You have to deposit those strains in a national depository, like a culture collection. Mm. So for those kind of strains, although they would be good from a regulatory point of view, because you've not edited and faffed about with them, the scope of protection you get is probably quite narrow because it's limited to that strain, if that makes sense. And then if you mess yeah. around with that strain, then you're, then you're kind of outside your claim scope. Yeah, so that, there's all that makes sense. Things that interact as to... Like if, if, you, if you're at the start of your journey and you could decide whether to CRISPR edit something, random mutagenesis or whatever, there's, there's different things you, you can think about to make your life easier, probably. Mm -hmm. And I guess it would depend on where you're operating from, what country, which one would be the, the desired pathway. Because, yeah. you know, if you're in, in the UK, you can't CRISPR it, so to speak. That's so interesting. Yeah. But I also have to be honest, like I feel like it all makes sense but then it just gets like more confusing the deeper you go <laughs> like with these yeah, things do you ever get overwhelmed with like oh my lord like this is this i think i think just not not really but when i was trying to write this article the microbial stuff and i was trying to mix in the, like the regulatory stuff the different types of gene editing and then there's this also this uh, it's called the nagoya protocol and that's supposed to stop uh biopiracy and stuff like that so to stop people mm -hmm. from going to brazil and taking their natural resources and exploiting them so there's yeah. that to factor in as well and I was like well I just don't know where to well I did I started several times writing this thing and I'm like well I don't know how to put it all together so I thought I'm just gonna stop just do a few short posts on it instead yeah I mean that's that's awesome like I, I really appreciate any any writing you would do about it but I I can empathize with how difficult it is to to yeah. explain it's like it's, it's it's like a lot of explaining science it's like you think you can just communicate it in one way and then you're like but wait I first have to explain what this means and before yeah, that, I have to yeah, explain okay. what a gene is <laughs> It's unfortunate. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Oh, this has been so good. <laughs> okay. So I guess like lastly, and I don't know when I'm getting cut off. I should have been cut off on zoom already, but apparently we're not. So, um, I want to, I want to just have like sort of four, three or four like recurring questions for every guest throughout the podcast. And those have to do with, just sort of like what you would tell, give advice for, you know, like past Sarah or uh, yeah. like younger people studying science. So if you wouldn't mind, if you had a piece of advice to give to like an undergraduate student um, in any context, whether it's about like career development or whatever, or if you just remember being an undergrad, what would, what would you tell them? Um, an undergrad, I'd probably say, don't worry if you don't know exactly what you want to do, because oh, so you'll probably end up where you need to be, I think. Um, and it's okay to not have, like some people have got this massive grand master plan that they're going to work towards and know exactly what right. they're going to do. But I don't think many people do that. And I think a lot of people just fall into things and find things that they didn't think they would enjoy, really enjoyable and get a lot of full, well, fulfillment out of it. So. Oh, oh totally, totally. Like, like, like a lot of times, I mean, I used to be far more guilty of this. It's like, you're not open to being open because you feel yeah. like everything has to be along this, this pathway. And then the, the biggest opportunities happen when you literally couldn't conceptualize yeah. what the next step would be. That's, that's great. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. So what about grad students? Such a loaded subject, but like, if you could give a piece or two or three of advice to grad students, um, 
what would it be? I think probably try try and make as much try and make as much as you can of the opportunities you get. And awesome. Don't no one else is going to career about care about your career really. So you need to do what you can to. So good. I don't know. Build up your CV. Expose yourself to different things. And this is something I didn't realize until after I'd left. And you look back in hindsight and think, well, actually, yeah, nobody did actually care. All people wanted me to do was be in the lab pipetting. There was. There's the in the UK we've got this thing called the Yes competition. It's like a biotech um, mini entrepreneurial thing where you have to set up a company, come up with an idea, do a marketing, mm-hmm. uh, IP strategy, and that kind of stuff. I know there's the iGEM synthetic biology competitions, mm-hmm. things like that. Just because you might do that, you might think, well, actually, I really like marketing. I like the marketing side of biology, or I totally. like the IP, or no, what I want to do is really I want to stay in the lab. I really enjoy lab work. Um, so I think just get yourself out there if you can. I, back, me back then would never be speaking to you now. I was very shy, and I was, um, yeah, I was happy. Really, just kind of you like did? Did you have? Here. Did you have bleached hair back then? Were you that? Were you that like just sort of out and 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 stylish I and was, commanding back then, or were you more timid? No, I don't. I, don't, I just don't think I would have gone for stuff, and I would have. Mm. I don't know. I just no, know that, that's that's totally fair. I think it's just age. I don't know. I'm like 41 now. I think with age, I don't know. Maybe just give less shits about things. You yeah. Know? No. Thank you. That's <laughs> this is like the soundbite of the episode. Like completely. I could, I'm like hand on heart. I completely agree. I think it's that you're you're not exposed because I went through the same thing. Like so many grad students aren't exposed to even ideas of jobs outside of just doing bench work. Like you just assume like, I'm going to get this PhD or a master's and I'm just going to follow what my PI does. And, and a lot of PIs are sort of already in their dream job, quote unquote. So like, why would they put time into helping you understand what's out there? So I think that's like such a great advice. And like, you're absolutely right. No one is going to care about your career. You have to do it for you because people just want you to, to pipette and publish like it's it's a really exactly. exploitative view of of science but a, a a lot of the industry runs on sort of that exploitation which isn't fair um yeah. and i really like the point about doing these like iGEM competitions or etc because what i'm coming across talking to a lot of students is like again like they're not even aware of opportunities in science and they you, you tend to think that like when I'm in science, I'm going to be doing lab work my whole life, but so many opportunities, I would say just as many exist outside of science, outside of a lab where you take an understanding of science and your ability to read literature like you do and, and translate and just translate it to like being a project manager or like a patent attorney or, you know, like a coordinator or working within the larger business world in an area that speaks to scientists. And so like, if you don't take these opportunities and, and learn, Hey, maybe I like marketing, maybe you can work for like a a marketing firm that does life science stuff. Right. That's, that's so, so awesome. Um, Okay. Two more real quick. Sorry. Uh, I don't know if this would be totally relevant, but like, I guess early career researchers or like postdocs, like, so, you know, the distinction is like, you're, you're outside of grad school, but you're probably dealing with your existential crisis, your 12,000th of like what I do, you know, um, what would you recommend those people to do? Again, just take take opportunities. And I think if you are still in uh, doing research, I think, well, from my point of view, get yourself clued up a bit on on IP and what you need yes. to get a patent. So what 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 are the criteria for something to be novel and inventive, and just get that in your head a little bit, and then you can 
I don't know. That's actually, that's amazing. What a criteria to be novel and inventive. That's a really easy thing for people to remember and think about constantly. Yeah. yeah. Like that. Um, Because I thought, oh, it's not new. But for something to not be new, somebody has to have done exactly that same thing before. So even though the concept might not be new, you might be using like a specific yeast promoter or Mm. something. And that that is new. And if it's if it's like useful, then it could be inventive. Um, So there are a lot of and just just keep your eyes open. You don't have to follow the linear path of what you're you do have to for your job. Follow what your grant research is saying. But there might be these like offshoots that you could. Totally, totally. And that's a really interesting point you made. Oh, here I go. I'm sorry. sorry. That's okay. <laughs> getting you off. Um, I yeah, and and to pick up on that point, that's that's a really really good point. Is that I think particularly in in like life sciences, we tend to think like, oh, nothing can be novel or new because like everything's already existed, built on the literature, yeah. and and like you know like simple cloning exists. So how am I doing anything different? But actually, novelty is a lot more novel, if I can yeah. phrase it that way, than you would that we think. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, okay. And so then last question would be like for people who are thinking of like, like I'm abandoning chip in lab work. I want to do something different. I, it could be the same answer you've already given, but if they're looking to switch careers or to sort of get out of pure science in terms in sense of like being a, like a postdoc or a researcher, um, what would you recommend for them? I think first of all, probably, well, I've, I found it quite hard to accept that actually this academic thing that I've geared up my whole life for was mm. not working out for me yeah and I suppose there's a lot of guilt is like that oh I'm a failed academic yeah um, a lot of identity probably yeah so first of all I think you have to get over that bit and think well actually you know stuff that um I don't know and also don't you, you're not too old so I left the lab when I was 33 and even at 33 I was thinking oh I'm probably too old to like start something new and then you think well actually I've got 40 years working left in me I want to spend that doing something that I really yeah. enjoy yeah totally. um so yeah you're not too old not try too and old work sure. although when I was leaving the lab all I, I was like well what can I do all I can do is prepare that's all I all I know how to do and it took me a while to sit there well actually no I'm good at yes. writing I'm good at explaining things to people all these things that you can do you just don't realize you're doing it so I'm quiet now just because that's the soundbite of the episode and I didn't, <laughs> didn't want to fuck it up. Thank you, Sarah. That is so good because that's, again, like every, everyone has gone through this. Like I went through this. I remember like being three months away from my defense and being like, all I fucking know how to do is pipette and clear leaves and yeah. no one cares about plant veins. That's what I studied. <laughs> and and you're just like in the state of denial. You're like, whatever, it'll all, it'll, I'll somehow graduate and do something, but like no one's going to... Yeah. E- and even now, I mean, like I'm starting... Truthfully, I'm starting to get a lot more involved in trying to grow an audience and like help other other scientists and students because I'm sort of going through a big career transition where I'm like, I don't really know what I want to do, but I think I want to give this a shot. And part of that is stemmed yeah. from the wider, just the way the job market is structured and the way that like, you know, ATS applicant tracking systems run the application process. It's really, really hard for people to even understand like the value that scientists bring to the table because they don't even understand like the words on the resume, let alone how yeah. to connect those dots. And so I think scientists yeah. suffer from a few things. Number one, like you said, is that they're so used to having this narrow conception of, of their abilities. Yeah. And number two is that they, I think they overestimate how the general public will conceive of their experience and abilities. So they're like, well, I, I, you know, as you said, you can write, you can manage projects, you can, you can have all these strong communication skills, but like a quote, regular person will look at you and be like, well, 
you're not a specific project manager. So I, I yeah. don't get it. Right. And so that's something yeah. I want to help people get over, but that's like, I'm so glad you touched on that because that's like between the identity crises, because you've, you know, if you're a grad student, you've spent probably 10 plus years, mm. you know, studying really hard and working in a very specific yeah. niche. And then you're like, well, who am I? If I, if I'm not by petting, like, like without, that, yeah. without my plants, <laughs> what do I do? And it's, uh, it's it's so I'm so glad you brought that up. This has been so good, Sarah. This has been amazing. Really Thank good. you so much. And I also want to say, like, it's been so amazing connecting with you. I feel like we're best friends already. Um, I was going to say that. This is I know, I like, you're that. amazing. Yeah, like, and and yeah, like, yeah. I'm I'm totally serious about like, I really want to like rope you in. Uh, I'm not going to say retainer because I have no money, but like, it would be really great <laughs> if you could if you could come back as a regular guest because I think your perspective is so valuable and you explain things yeah. extremely well and. Like, as you know, like IP is for the general public. I think so many people have no idea where to start. So it would be really cool to like yeah. touch base on. I mean, next time we can talk more about cool developments and all that. But like you are in love with synthetic biology and biotech and I'm more in love with that as well. And I think it's going to be like totally awesome. So thank you so, so much. Perfect. Have an awesome day, Sarah. Thanks so much. I'll you talk do. to you in like a couple hours, I'm sure. Yeah. And- all right. See you later. Bye. Bye. And that is a wrap for the first episode of the Biosplaining Podcast. I really hope you enjoyed it. My name is Ira. My guest today was Sarah Holland, patent attorney at Potter Clarkson in Nottingham in the UK. Sarah specializes in synthetic biology and biotechnology patent law. We talked about pipetting. We talked about postdocs. We talked about patent law and all this awesome stuff. And I really hope you found this information useful and fun and engaging. I also just want to say thanks for bearing with us. This is the first episode of the podcast. And like everything like this, the first episode is always kind of janky. So I do appreciate your patience and the fact that Sarah and I both have the really bad habit of talking over each other constantly. So I just wanted to come back, keep talking to us on a regular basis, and hopefully we can like work out this over talking together and it'll be a nice smooth transition into the future. If you want to get in touch, please do. We're working on setting up a whole bunch of online infrastructure and presence. Right now, we're building the Biosplaining website, but if you wanted to reach out, you can reach me via email at ira.share, that's I-R-A dot S-H-E-R-R at gmail.com. You can also reach out to me on LinkedIn, Ira Share. I also write under Coach Bio if you want to look me up that way on LinkedIn. I will be expanding the podcast to have presences on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok and all the social media. But right now I'm focusing on LinkedIn just to grow the audience and connect with other researchers and students and postdocs that way. If there's anything you want to see on the podcast, please drop me a line and let me know. And as I'm new to this whole podcast territory, I'm sure you've heard it a million times. But if you can like, subscribe, leave comments, tell your friends, that would be fantastic. And if you'd like to keep up to date on everything happening with the Biosplitting Podcast and my future projects, of which there are many, I'm super excited, you can sign up for the mailing list. The mailing list URL is coachbio.card.co. That's C-O-A-C-H-B-I-O dot C-A-R-R-D dot C-O. The Biosplitting logo and visual identity was designed by Gio Petrucci. Theme music, audio editing, sound design, and audio engineering was handled by the mighty Fred Brenton. The podcast ecosystem is super competitive these days, and so I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to this podcast, and I hope you enjoyed it. See you next time.